welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 33, recorded on December 19th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be with you. We are recording out of time, ahead of time this week for the holidays, and we've put together a holiday special, look back at some of the big stories from 2017, the things that really changed Linux and open source. Yeah, so let's start with 32-bit support, and a number of distros dropped it this year. It seems that 2017 is at least the beginning of the end for 32-bit Linux. Yeah, it kicked off really, to my recollection, on January 23rd when Arch announced that they were beginning the process. They say due to decreasing popularity, which is what a lot of the distributions recently cited, like Tails and others. Yeah, and Ubuntu 17.10, of course, there's no 32-bit desktop image for that, although there are still 32-bit packages in the archive and will be probably for quite a while. It's, I think we, we've seen the tide turn in 2017 away from 32-bit. Because of containerization and things like that, it's not going to completely go away. But I think certainly in the desktop world, you have distros like Solus that never even bothered with 32-bit support because realistically, the only machines that are still working and going to actually give you any sort of performance are netbooks, and even they are pretty old hat now. But everything else for the last sort of 10 years-ish has been 64-bit capable, so it's uh, time for 32-bit to die on the desktop, I think. I suppose so. We did see some pushback. In fact, I recall even you and I were talking about how I think you still have a 32-bit system in production or so that you still find perfectly useful and uh, functional. So there's people out there that are still rocking 32-bit. But if you look at just the date math, I don't think Intel has shipped a non-64-bit chip in eight years, nine years for the desktop. Yeah, it's time. The system I had I can't even remember why I'd installed 32-bit. I think I had some issue with some application, and I just stuck with it through sheer stubbornness. But then I upgraded to a newer version of Ubuntu and just went 64-bit. And now I don't have any 32-bit systems at all. One of the other stories we watched unfold throughout the year was the slow and obvious failure of Limux. Yeah, in Munich, in Germany, it was the poster child for open source and government a project that was around for about 10 years. And this year they voted to return to Windows and we started to see that rollout happen now. And it's just the end of a chapter, the end of an experiment that went horribly wrong, unfortunately. But you know, Joe, when Munich closes a door, Microsoft opens a window, and those users that will be switching back to Windows 10 will at least be able to install Ubuntu or maybe even Fedora because this was the year where Ubuntu arrived in the Windows Store and SUS and Fedora were announced to be there soon. The subsystem for Linux went out to all Windows 10 users. This was the year that this really took place. Like the, It all clicked in, and Microsoft delivered on this run bash on top of Windows reality. Yeah, it's kind of everything but Linux, isn't it? The kernel. It's OpenSSH now as well, as we talked about recently. It's Microsoft embracing open source, realizing where the market's going, and taking decisive action to not be left behind, which I'd rather they didn't because I'd rather they were left behind and people moved over to Linux. But the market reality is they've decided to embrace this stuff and it's probably going to eat into the potential converts over to Linux. Perhaps. There's nothing like seeing Ubuntu in the Windows 
store. Like you go into the Microsoft Windows store and you search for Ubuntu and there's this big logo and screenshots. It's, it's really quite the experience, but it's not the true Linux experience. So it may, it may stop the bleeding, but I'm not super worried about it. In the meantime, I'm just too distracted by Bitcoin and all of the forks we saw this year. Yeah, it's been a funny old year for Bitcoin. Of course, now the value is about 20 times what it was at the beginning of the year. We did say we're recording this early. It could crash in the next few days before this is published. So uh, let's hope that it is. Still. I suppose it's always possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, two hard forks appeared and there was uh, the threat of a third one. The first one was Bitcoin Cash and then the second one, Bitcoin Gold. And to be honest, I haven't even really cashed in my Bitcoin Cash or Gold. It, to me, it seems not even really worth doing. What about you? Have you managed to get hold of yours and sort it out? I haven't really pursued it that far because the whole Bitcoin fork fiascos just got me more interested in some of the cooler cryptocurrencies like Monero and Dash that to me may have longer lasting usefulness on the internet than Bitcoin. So I, I don't know, it's funny, like these forks got me less interested in Bitcoin and more interested in other cryptocurrencies, which I, th I think is a good thing. I'm not sure, Joe. <laughs> but at the same time, I was kind of expecting these forks to destabilize it and make the price go down, and it's just had the complete opposite effect. Yeah. Whether or not that price would have gone up regardless, I don't know, but it's almost legitimized it as the the Coke uh, or the Pepsi or whatever, you know, the, the name you know in cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I should save this rest for a predictions episode in the future. But I really, I really have been struck by everything that turns out initially to be negative news for Bitcoin eventually just led to the rise of the price of Bitcoin, Joe. So it's, it's pretty nuts to watch all of this stuff. And these forks still are going. I see people talking about them online. So it's not like they're dead. And it's a good space to trial and error different approaches to these technologies. So it seems to have been a net positive. Just like some people speculate, there's too many Linux distributions, and other people say it's a natural evolutionary course where all these different ideas get to be tried out. I think it's a one-to-one -one comparison to cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. But if you look at these two forks, they weren't just for a laugh, were they? They were there to solve a particular technical problem, and that is there is not enough space in each block. There are not enough transactions per block, and that is eventually going to cause a huge problem. Mm -hmm. We've already got transaction fees through the roof, yep. unless you want to wait for a very long time for your transaction to be processed. And so there are very sound technical reasons why these forks happened. But it just seems that unless Bitcoin itself adopts these changes, these changes are not going to actually be implemented. And it's not going to solve the problem because Bitcoin is the name you know. And I suppose the people who made these forks hoped that Bitcoin Cash would take over, but it, it hasn't happened yet, and I, it, I just can't see it happening. Right. The good news, all this stuff is open source, so it could be brought back in upstream if there was some significant technological improvement. I'm getting to the point, though, where I wonder if this stuff isn't going to be solved at another layer. Not to go too far into this, but you picture the blockchain and Bitcoin as like layer one and two of the network stack. And there's application layers that could sit on top of that, SQL databases that can process transactions instantly. If you think about Coinbase, one of the largest, most popular ways to buy Bitcoin right now, those transactions are happening off the blockchain. 
inside a SQL database instantly, and then they sync up to the blockchain. When you go to a store and you buy something with your credit card, here in the States, the Visa network isn't instantly verifying the transaction. They have a 30-day lag. But they solve it at the application layer. And I think that might be true with Bitcoin, too. You could, you could build transaction software, your, your uh, Stripe-type services, on top of Bitcoin that use off-blockchain um, backends, like SQL databases, and then synchronize it to the blockchain, like Coinbase does or other large uh, Bitcoin exchanges do already. Yeah, I think that is pretty much going to happen. And that's why I think the value is going to continue to rise. And uh, we'll get into that next week when we put some hard numbers on uh, our predictions for Bitcoin. DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code, here's the thing. It's all one word. You create your account and then you apply it. DigitalOcean is a way for you to spin up a Linux system in seconds on their super fast infrastructure. And they have data centers all over the world. Everything Every machine is using SSD disk, and that means everything flies because between all SSDs and 40 gigabit connections to the internet, these systems have unbelievable performance. For $5 a month, you could use our $10 credit and try out DigitalOcean two months for free. They have block storage and object storage, a simple API with tons of really good open source applications pre-built for you, and monitoring and alerting that it's built right into the service. With straightforward pricing and great documentation and an interface that will blow you away, there's really no reason not to try it. DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code, here's the thing. DigitalOcean.com, promo code, here's the thing. Okay, so by far the biggest news story in the Linux world this year was back in April when Mark Shotworth dropped the bombshell that Ubuntu was abandoning Unity, abandoning the phone, switching back to GNOME, and it was all changed for the Ubuntu project. This is the story of the year that affected me the most personally, because unless I was a canonical employee, I couldn't have been more on the front lines. I was sitting at a large conference table with the folks at Dell that all were responsible for shipping Ubuntu machines. The moment, in fact, I was the one that broke the news to them. By the way, you're no longer going to be shipping Unity, and you should have seen their faces. I mean, I couldn't have been in a better room, <laughs> other than Mark Shuttleworth's office, I suppose. And uh, then I was in New York towards the completion of this journey, watching the team come together, the remaining staff, and the final push towards 1710. So I saw both ends of bewilderment and the home stretch completion, and it, it really caused a lot of reflection in the whole community, I felt, Joe. Like, people were asking, where is this going? What does this mean for GNOME? What does this mean for the Plasma desktop now that all these companies are in on GNOME? Is there going to be a huge fork? Is there going to be controversy and fights? There were so many questions, but so few answers. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion early on in April and May, but then Canonical really upped their communication game, didn't they, with Didier blogging, the desktop uh, progress, and, of course, the Ubuntu rally that you went to in New York. And a lot of the questions were answered over the six months after the announcement. And for me, I think they were answered in a very positive way. If you look at Ubuntu 17.10, it is a solid release. It wasn't just stock GNOME. It isn't just them abandoning the desktop. They did work on it and refine it and make it their own. So I think a lot of the, the doubters, myself included, were kind of silenced really by the work that they actually did on it and the the release that came out that wasn't what I'd expected when I read that announcement, put it that way. 
And I think they've really set the table for the 1804 release next year. And I think it's going to be, I hope, a pretty polished release of the Linux desktop and maybe the one I eventually switch to. I'm I'm thinking it's a, the future is bright for all of us who have been looking for a great workstation operating system to settle down on. More and more really good options are coming along, and I think 1804 is going to be one of the better ones. Uh, just wait for one of my predictions on the next episode, and uh, you might end up using something I'm going to predict. <laughs> Very good, sir. In the meantime, there's been one story this year that you've kind of been my go-to guy on what does all of this mean? And it's all of the hoopla around CyanogenMod. Yeah, so this was technically around this time last year that it started. There had been problems with CyanogenMod for a long time. I'd noticed in, I think, September of last year that I hadn't had any snapshot updates for CyanogenMod for a few months, and the writing seemed to be on the wall for them. And then it was right around Christmas that CyanogenMod servers got turned off and a fork appeared and it became Lineage OS. And a lot of the original people who were involved with CyanogenMod jumped ship over to Lineage OS. And I had really high hopes for it at the beginning of the year. I was really hoping that they were going to deliver on a number of devices and keep supporting them with OTAs. And they did. My hopes came true. It's been solid all year long. They're now working on their next version uh, based on Android 8, actually 8.1. And it's been solid. I've been using it all year long on various different Android devices. It's really just a continuation of CyanogenMod. There have been a few little tweaks here and there, but fundamentally, you've got the same open source ROM without all the Google bloat. But if, like me, you want to add a bit of that Google bloat back in, you can. But if not, you've got a mostly open source mobile operating system to use. I knew it was going to happen like this. I knew my, I just know myself at this point, but... When when they announced Lineage OS, I hated the name. I just hated it. And now here we are in December. I don't mind it at all. No problem. I've totally gotten used to the name. In fact, I'm really excited about the project. Very happy that, like you said, it's it's going in the right direction. But intellectually, I've been finding what's going on over at Yala almost more interesting. Like, I'm going to end up using Lineage OS, but I've been finding that I enjoy the Sailfish X saga much more. Yeah, so Sailfish wasn't looking too good at the beginning of the year, whereas it's had a reasonable year, actually, with this Sailfish X project, as you mentioned. That is on the Xperia X phone, which is a ROM you can buy from Yola. And financially, they're still not in great shape. They still owe quite a lot of people for the tablets that they crowdfunded and never delivered. But they have got a revenue stream now. They are developing Sailfish. and. I want them to succeed. I want them to be more open source, don't get me wrong. But I want there to be at least another operating system for phones that is usable. I heard that sentiment over and over again from the audience over the year. But probably the most poignant moment was when I was in New York. I was talking to a couple of Canonical developers who really like the idea of having a revenue stream to just fund this type of development because they've been through that mobile process now. And I think they ended up ordering the Sailfish X um, phone. I can't, what was it, Joe? Is it the Sony Xperia that you could install it on? Um, and and they, I think they ended up pre-purchasing that phone in, in, in anticipation of all of this. And you could see they have palatable excitement about something that's an alternative to Android. 
Yeah, the Xperia X is the phone, yeah. And I have used Selfish on various other devices, and I must say that of all of the Linux-based alternative mobile operating systems, it's the best. Tizen's fairly good, yeah. but Selfish is is really solid from what I've seen of it. I completely agree. I, I really enjoyed it for the limited amount of time that I did run it. The situation on Android could be improving in the near future, the next few years. This year, Google announced Project Treble, the modular base for Android that may actually allow updates to be sent out to consumers to keep them protected, to keep their operating system up to date. It essentially broke out the low-level system architecture of Android and the upper levels. Yeah, so it means that there's a lot less work for the OEMs to put in to keep the ROMs up to date and to keep the versions of Android up to date. And so in theory, if they deploy this properly, it means that you won't have months and months and months of lag between updates and often with some devices that you buy there's just no updates or you might get one maybe and then you get these huge security vulnerabilities coming out and then they're just not patched against that so in theory and i keep saying that because it's it takes work from the oems in the first place to implement this but in theory this is really good news going forwards and not only actually for people who want to use the official ROM that comes with the phone, it also makes custom ROM development far easier because there's just less work involved in porting ROMs to the device. But if this doesn't solve your Android woes, then maybe the Librem 5 will, because this year, on October 11th, 14 days ahead of the deadline, the Librem 5 was fully funded. They reached $1.5 million in crowdfunding, for a fully free open source phone with hardware kill switches. Yeah, and I said at the time we need to hire their PR department because they did a brilliant job of promoting this, didn't they? I think they did the best I've ever seen in the open source community. It should be a case study for other projects that want to do a hardware-software combo. If you recall, Joe, towards the end of it too, a couple of big whales came in, which that's not necessarily reproducible. Well, yeah, it eventually it got pushed over 2 million, didn't it? Thanks to those big whales, as you say, which we still don't know who that was, but uh, mm -mm, maybe no. we'll find out next year. Yeah, we'll keep following the Librem 5. I'm very interested in that development, and I'm sure there'll be more news throughout 2018. But let's talk about Firefox OS for a moment. The news wasn't so good in 2017 for Firefox OS. Yeah, we kind of saw this one coming that there hadn't been any devices for a while, and there weren't any plans for any, but officially this year, Mozilla shut down the Connected Devices Group, which was a department within Mozilla responsible for Firefox OS. So it officially died, but thankfully, Mozilla had plenty of other things that they got up to this year. Yeah, it was a bit of a controversial year for them, kicking it off with acquiring Pocket. Yeah, and this came off the back of installing Pocket by default, which ruffled a lot of feathers. I actually use Pocket all the time for this show and others. It is a very useful service, but I don't know about bundling it by default. But when they acquired Pocket, they promised to open source it, and I was really excited about that because an open source client, fantastic. More importantly, an open source server so I can roll my own. That would be exactly what I want because I don't want the adverts. I want to be able to potentially have some bloat stripped out of it. It'd be great to have it on a droplet running and have complete control over it. 
So come on, Mozilla, what's happening with open sourcing that? Get on with it, please. <laughs> See, I actually thought you and I were going to have a disagreement about this. When the whole pocket thing went down, I was a Chrome user. I was all in on Chrome. I was looking over from afar going, geez, these guys are really getting upset about this. And so, of course, I had Firefox installed. So I checked it out. I'm like, oh, pocket. This is a lot like Instapaper. Well, I, I use the hell out of Instapaper. It seems like a feature you'd want built into your browser. And Apple has shipped it in Safari for like a few years now. I'm pretty sure Internet Explorer has something similar. Really, I I think Chrome's the only browser that doesn't have this functionality built in. So it got me thinking, well, if Mozilla had just built a pocket competitor into Firefox, would people have been as upset? I don't think they would have. It is a great app. I think... It's a pipe dream that the whole thing's going to be open sourced, especially the back end, because one of the things that Mozilla touted when they purchased Pocket was this great human recommendation engine on the back end that's curating the best content of Pocket, and there's no way... There's no way they can ship that because that requires a staff. So they're either going to give you some sort of pared down Node.js server application or it's just never going to happen. And that's an early prediction. That's a tease for our predictions episode, Joe. (laughs) Well, I'd be happy with a pared down version of it. I have no interest in any of the social stuff and the recommendation. I just want to be able to save links and view them offline. Thank you very much. Fair enough. I think one of their strategies that made a lot of sense to me personally this year was the introduction of Firefox Focus. This seems to be the way to go after mobile for Mozilla, in my opinion. Yeah, I remember trying this out when it first came out and really being impressed with how fast it was. It was definitely the fastest browser I'd ever used on Android. But I remember thinking at the time that it could do with a few more features, and those features have been forthcoming. But I wondered, does that somewhat defeat the purpose of it? If you add too much in the way of features, does that make it not as fast? And it's kind of focused on privacy as well. So I think it remains to be seen how this develops, but it's good that they have got a different approach because it seems that Firefox itself, the main version of the browser, is not doing that well on Android compared with Chrome. So they have to try something to stay relevant in the mobile market. And um, it's something that I'm definitely going to keep an eye on throughout 2018, I think. I've always enjoyed the ad tracker counter as a cool little demo to show people how creepy the internet is. But there is an area where Mozilla has had more success, and that's Project Common Voice. What I love about Project Common Voice is it just feels like an initiative for the people to make something better on the web in general without a direct benefit from Mozilla. Yeah, this is them doing their public service, isn't it? collating all of these people's voices, reading the various things that you have to do, and also the data of people listening to the voices and confirming whether or not they've transcribed it properly. We need something like this if we're going to compete with what Amazon and Google and Apple have got going with their lady in a tube, as you call them. Yeah, and even just to offer basic speech recognition to websites and open source applications that can't afford nuances, multi-million dollar licensing agreement, and all of the data exchange required. That's why I think this is one of Mozilla's power spots. Like, they're in the power stroke with this particular project. They also really nailed the Firefox Quantum release this year. Yeah, I've seen nothing but universal praise for this release, and... For me, it's just something that got upgraded on Ubuntu and I was just using it as a matter of course. And it's definitely faster than the previous versions of Firefox. I think some people have uh, a little bit over-egged the pudding on how much faster and better it is. And they changed the layout a little bit, which I didn't like at first, but I've got used to now. But it, it is definitely a huge step forward for them. They need to stay competitive with Chrome if they've got any chance. 
And I don't know, do you think they really have got any chance of winning back market share from Chrome at this point? I mean, I'm not sure. They've won back market share from me. It's it's enough of a cumulative um, improvement that I find it launches faster. I find it loads web pages at least as fast, if not maybe slightly faster. And I would say maybe what it actually is is the order in which it loads the web page I prefer. That's what we're getting down to now is how the web page is rendered on my screen. I like the way Firefox is doing it better than the way Chrome is doing it now as it's loading. But it also seems to do it without putting as much of a drag on my system which I also really like because it leaves resources available for other applications. I'm pretty happy with it. I'm, and I'm, I'm one of those fools who likes the new UI because I've heard a lot of people complain about it, but I think it's pretty great. That and all the other improvements they've baked into it, it's become my daily driver. But they're not without their controversies this year, too. In fact, going into 2018, I think Mozilla might be one of the companies that's embroiled in some of the biggest controversies. Yeah, the lawsuit with Yahoo!, which stems from a deal that they did to become the default search provider, which would net them over a billion dollars, but had a clause in it that said, if Yahoo is sold, then Mozilla can walk away from the deal, keep the money and change the default search provider. Well, Yahoo was sold, as we know, to Verizon. They changed their default search back to Google and intend to keep the money. And Yahoo, or Oath as they become, and Yahoo Holdings, are having none of it and they want their money back and they don't want to pay any more money and so they're trying to weasel out of this deal and neither of us are lawyers but i'm fairly confident that mozilla are going to get away with this and get to keep the money and keep making it rain yeah if i was a betting man i, I would bet this is going to work out okay for mozilla i'm not so sure how this whole mr robot looking glass add-on situation is going to go they're at least going to spend the first half of 2018 digging themselves out of this hole yeah, so much squandered goodwill. Just when they were coming off the, the high of Firefox 57 Quantum, they go and do this at the end of the year and push an extension to people's browsers without them even knowing about it. And it's some confusing thing about Mr. Robot that hardly anyone even knows about. I can't believe they've made this mistake, and I hope that people get fired over this. It's not good when people lose their jobs, but it's also not good when they damage the reputation of a major open-source project. Yeah, I hope there's some reflection in the upper levels of Mozilla. It's been a good year overall for them, though, so hopefully they still have some goodwill to cash in. I, I debated dropping Firefox after the extension fiasco, but if I'm being honest, I think I still trust Mozilla more than I trust Chrome. And I like the advances in Firefox this last year, and I think they're on a good trajectory for 2018 with Firefox specifically. So I'm just going to keep an eye on it, and we'll keep reporting on what happens here on the show. In fact, you can get every single week's episode if you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get this episode, and like we've been teasing a couple of times this week, our predictions, and not just predictions, but things we hope to see throughout 2018 in the world of Linux. That'll be in next week's episode. Yeah, and go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. You can support the whole network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our look forward to 2018. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Happy holidays, everyone, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.